0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to be here with Roberto Verganti at the University of Politecnico in Milan. Thank you for inviting me here, Roberto, and welcome to my podcast.
1: Glad to be here too.
0: Uh, You have done so many fascinating and interesting things that I just, you know, have to take a bit more than usual for the intro. So, here we go. Roberto Verganti works at this amazing intersection between leadership, design, and technology management. He's a professor of leadership and innovation at the School of Management of Politecnico di Milano. He has been a visiting scholar at the Harvard Business School, at the Copenhagen Business School and the California Polytechnic University. And he is also on the European Design Leadership Board of the European Commission. He has written more than 150 articles and is the author of the book, Overcrowded, Designing Meaningful Products in a World Awash with Ideas, which was published in February 2017 by MIT Press and also the book Design-Driven Innovation, Changing the Rules of Competition by Radically Innovating What Things Mean, which has been published by Harvard Business Press, and he's also a regular contributor in Harvard Business Review. But before, Roberto, before we dive into your exciting uh, world, let me first ask you, what is actually driving you? In other words, what is your passion or what is your dream, if you like?
1: The word passion to me is a little tricky because uh, it's a very popular word in postmodern world to think about what is your passion, which is one of the major problems we have in our society. I would like to see it like this. There are two ways of thinking about passion. Passion is something pleasurable that makes you feel good or drives you, or passion is something meaningful. I like the second perspective. So what is meaningful for me? Because uh, passion comes from a Latin word, which is patire, which means to suffer. And in reality, passion is the passion of Christ. And that's the first definition of what passion is. You get to what is meaningful, you know, Christ dies in the cross, that's the passion. But you do it because it's meaningful. It's painful, but it's meaningful. And that's the meaning of your life. His entire life is focused on that. He knew it since the beginning. So passion is something that you're ready to suffer for to get to a higher level, which I call meaning. And what is meaningful for me? uh, Meaningful for me is to help uh, people grow and learn. That's the reason why I decided to be a professor. I like to, and when I say people, maybe, uh, unfortunately, it's very difficult to help everyone grow. So I usually like to select a few persons I like, but then help them to achieve the dreams of their life. That's what drives me, helping people learn and grow. And the dreams, I don't know. I was thinking about your question about dreams. My dream is what I'm doing. I'm a happy professor. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful, because I can tell you that I know a lot of people
0: who don't know what their dream is, and also, therefore, they cannot understand, you know, should they or not be happy? So (laughs) that's a major achievement uh, in life, actually. But in terms of turning points in your life, you know, which ones have influenced you the most?
1: (laughs) In my career, I think that one funny thing is that I wanted to be an astronomer, so when I was 19 I had to choose a university and, and I went to my partner and I said, I would like to be an astronomer, and I said, you know, if you're an astronomer, what kind of job you're going to do? You, you'll be without any job in your life, you know, there's no job for astronomers, just a few professors in university. And I always think about that and I laugh because then I decided to become an engineer. And I always laugh, because eventually when I meet my parents, I always say, you know, better, you know eventually I still work in a university, so I could have been a, an astronomer. So I took the wrong job. And in fact, I'm not an engineer anymore. Uh, I, uh, another turning point, when I was 24, when you are an engineer, you can pick. At that time, it was the exam number 29. Exam number 29 was an exam that you can pick from whatever you like. And I like this exam about management. It was one option. I mean, I was an engineer, so it wasn't, wasn't meant to take an exam on, on business administration. So, but with some friends, we went to the first class of this exam. You know, we will, were looking for something easy because, uh, you know, the, if you can choose an exam, it's three, something easy. And, but then this professor said at the first class, I said, you know, don't believe that business administration is easy. It's quite hard. Actually, sometimes even harder for an engineer because it, there's no clear cut about what is right and what is wrong. So remember, I went home, and called my friend on the phone, it was still a landline phone, and he said, what should we do? I mean, this is a hard exam, so are we totally nuts that we're taking as a 29 exam, something still very difficult? And then we decided to do it, and then I did my master's thesis on that, and then I started to work with this professor at Polytechnic and all my life changed because of a phone call. And maybe the big, big change again in my life when in a conference I met a professor from Harvard Business School whose name was Mark O'Neill City. He was Italian by origin, so we started to talk. He said, oh, why don't we come? Don't you come to Harvard to do some research? There are simply yeah. the small thing that is waiting for you, because if you're not ready, there are many small things that happen in your life, but you don't see them. So mm-hmm. basically, you, you want to go there, and sooner or later it will happen, and a door will open up. Uh-huh.
0: So. But you also serve as a, an advisor to companies uh, such as, I know, Ferrari and... Uh, Gucci and Vodafone and Nestle and Tetra Pak, etc., etc. When they knock on your door, what is it that they want?
1: Typically, they come because most of my research has been doing innovation, so they search for innovation, and typically they knock after they have been trying to do it for a while. Typically, have been, in this moment, there, are, there is a lot of people working on innovation, working on creating ideas, brainstorming, workshop, creativity, design thinking, and, and, and open innovation. So they're all trying to do a lot of stuff. And they, the classic sentence, I had the same sentence yesterday from a corporation in the Netherlands. I said, no, we have been doing a lot of workshop, we have a lot of ideas, but we don't know what to do. It's uh, like an
0: abundance. There's too much.
1: There's too much. And so they come to me because we have developed a methodology that I've been trying since 10 years, uh, tools and the methodologies to help you go in the right direction. And not only help you, but the entire organization, because the most difficult thing is to have everyone engaged in the same meaningful direction. That's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So that's the classic question. How, How can we have a vision, a shared vision that is meaningful and that people believe in? and we all move in the same direction, and, and we happen with that. What is a good vision, really? Good vision is something, I keep using this word meaningful, it's not necessarily better or worse, it's something that is uh, something in which you believe in that is meaningful for your organization, is meaningful for your customers, and is meaningful for you as a person. I can make an example of a project we did, uh, we have been working with uh, Alfa Romeo Alfa Romeo is a, is a brand that belongs to FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. And we work in a project called 4C, it's a model by Alfa Romeo. The 4C is a quite sportish car. In terms of look, it looks very sportish, but it has two different changes in terms of meaning, in terms of what, what is the vision for a sport car that is totally different than the others. First of all, it's not expensive. I mean, still, it's not a 500, but it's more or less the price of a BMW 304. So it's it's not the classic myth of, oh my God, this guy is a sport car, so how rich is it? No, it's, it's, I mean, it's affordable. The second one is not powerful, because it has the same engine of the Giulietta, which is a very, very small uh, sedan, but it's so light because it's carbon fiber and there's no air conditioning, there's no tapestry in the car. Everything is stripped off. So it's super light. So the ratio between power and kilograms is like a Ferrari, which means it challenges two typical meanings of what is a sport car. First, it's not expensive. And second, you're not powerful. And we know that many guys buy big sport cars because they want to feel powerful. That instead is a car for, for experts. You buy that car only if you know that this is a very special car with unique performance because it's so light that as soon as you turn around, the car moves. So it's a totally different vision that is against the mainstreams of where the sport car industry is going. And it's quite successful. They have two years of, of orders now. And uh, that's the vision, which is a vision that is meaningful for customers, because it's totally different than the classic and it's more, much more meaningful than they say, I buy a sport car because I'm rich. That's very easy. It's meaningful for the organization because it was the first project that Alfa Romeo did as a sport car after a long time. Great passion between the company. You can see the passion in the product. You see the designer and the engineers love that car. And meaningful for the organization because the business is good. So you can combine the three things. People, customers, and business, which is not bad.
0: Did they also build in some kind of, um, you know, environmentally friendly thinking into the product?
1: If you take the sport car, (laughs) no. You can try to reduce pollution by doing less polluting engines and so on. But the best way to fight polluting with car is simply not to buy a car anymore, but to rent them. And that's the reason why that project I liked it a lot, because I told that from, you know, if I would be a customer, I would never buy an Alpha 4C, but I will pay 500 euros just to rent it for a weekend and go on a truck and try it in a truck. That's the best way to combine fun, pleasure, no pollution, which is the, the idea of the sharing economy, of course. That's much more difficult for organizations to understand. If you're used to sell stuff, moving to selling experiences is one of the most difficult, and understand why it's difficult, because if you have 40,000 people working in a factory, it's not easy to tell them, sorry, now we are moving from selling stuff to selling experiences. So if you have a responsible leader, you need to take care of the families you're giving food to. Mm-hmm. So I understand it's a little more challenging, but that's the direction to go. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know if they, or even you, if you're inspired by what Tesla is doing?
1: Yes, I mean, that's another interesting direction, uh, doing the electric car. is not a big change of meaning, new vision. Yeah. It's very similar. So you can have sport cars and, and powerful cars, not necessarily because you have engine. The electric engine was typically associated to the goofy cars of, you know, people who can afford something more, the environmentally friendly segment <laughs> of... Uh, which is a super small segment. Instead, they make it cool. Okay. Then, then, then you discover it's also electric. But first of all, a Tesla has an amazing acceleration. So it's a great car before being, and that's the only way to, to be sustainable. That first of all, you make things that are meaningful for customers, and they're also meaningful for, for the environment. I don't, I don't believe that we can ever go far simply by putting environment first because eventually people is not thinking like this we need to be responsible as designers and managers to make things that are cool for customers. And by the way, they're, they're sustainable.
0: I think I read somewhere that you wrote that uh, how to create innovations you know, that customers do not expect, but that they eventually end up loving. Yeah. How do you go about that?
1: I mean, I talk about this in my last book, uh, Overcrowded, there are two things. First of all, a lot of research shows that breakthrough innovation don't come from users. Because, uh, I mean, from the famous sentence of Henry Ford that say, you know, if you want to have, talk about cars, if I ask customer, they will ask me for a faster horse, not for a car, of course. Breakthrough change doesn't come from users, it uh, comes from visions. So you start from you, but then you need to be sure that what is your vision is something that also people would love. So you need to be very critical to yourself, be open to listen, which is exactly the opposite of what we teach to most design and, and innovation students, we say, okay, listen to the users and then be creative. Listen to the users, I mean, you tend to do something very incremental and then be creative. You, you put out ideas and, and you don't, I mean, we we'll come back to that later, but uh, it's very difficult to change the world through ideas. You really need to be driven by, by what you believe in, what is meaningful, and then be critical enough that every time you see a signal that is not in line with that, you readjust what you, what you think. So, it's two principles, start from the inside out and, and be critical.
0: In general, we say that you know, successful companies long-term are those that have a very clear purpose. What is the best company today that, that have that very clear meaning? Hmm, that, that, you know, that people know
1: of as well. Right, not a classic secret- example it used to be Apple. I mean, that was so easy to, to think about. I don't know now if it, that can be still used as an example. Patagonia in, in fashion, Alessi, you know, making people happy through kitchenware, which is a, such a crazy vision, but they manage and they're very successful. You know, I can make you smile by simply buying a lemon squeezer, why not? Hmm. It's an everyday object transforming to into soul. There are companies who have very clear vision where to want to go. Peppy socks, <laughs>
0: yeah, talking <it's- laughs> about
1: Sweden. a <laughs> clear vision. Yeah. There are millions of companies with socks. is a company with a clear vision.
0: I know that you appreciate also to work in uh, an experimental mode, and particularly with, you know, maybe pioneer companies as well, who I guess are more prone to this experimental mode. And I see around me a lot of mid-sized and bigger also companies that are, you know, trying, understanding it in theory, but they don't let go. They don't really experiment. They want still to have a lot of things under control. How do you Make people understand that they need to be more you know trusting their purpose and 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 go from there and then be more relaxed about things and not assuming that they can have things under control
1: hmm. Now it's a good question nowadays, we don't live in a world that is missing ideas. It used to be like this maybe twenty years ago when people started to focus on innovation, but really. I never heard an organization coming to me saying, we don't have ideas in the last five, six years. And it's increasingly like this. And it's very simple because the digital technologies enable us to pick ideas from all over the world. Electrolux doing refrigerators. You go online, there are thousands of competitions of schools about the next refrigerators, the refrigerator of the future, refrigerators 2025, refrigerators and sustainability. Nothing is missing. And if you still need some ideas, you can go to a website like Innocentive, post a challenge there, and you will receive thousands of ideas. Ideas are commodities nowadays. The marginal value of an additional idea today is very small. Sometimes it's even negative. Putting one more idea there simply makes the environment more confused. So it's the direction that we lack. Uh, the more you have options, A lot, I mean, there's a classic problem of psychology. The more you have options, the more it's difficult to understand where to go. There is a beautiful book by Barry Schwartz. Its title is The Paradox of Choice. The more you have choice, the more it's difficult to choose. The more you postpone, even postpone the choice. So, this overabundance of ideas is paralyzing organizations. That's why it's very important to understand where to go because the vision that enables you to say, okay, there are millions of opportunities around us. But if I have vision, the vision enabled me to decide what not to do, which is more important nowadays than deciding what to do. This bearish farts is great. He's using a metaphor of love. Do we have problem nowadays to meet a person in our life? When you have, I don't know, 200, 3000 friends on Facebook, on LinkedIn, you have 3500 people connected to me. And if you really have problem, you can go to Tinder and you can meet whatever person you want. So we have a lot of options. Thousand and thousand more than my father had when he married my mom. And still people married less. Isn't it mm. unbelievable? Yeah. So we don't have a problem of options. There is a lot of things. So the same is for ideas. There are a lot of ideas. The more there are ideas, the people have more problem to really do it because there are so many things that can be done that they eventually get paralyzed. So this is the first question. So organizations have become machines of producing ideas. And sometimes they are even become machines to produce innovations. They really do it. Then there is a second question is, do we really need all this innovation? I mean, now taking the perspective of the customers. Last month in January, 2017, there was an interesting article on Harvard Business Review by Roger Martin and Lafley about, I think the title was something boring, like your customers are not so loyal or the cumulative value of innovation. But they make a very important point And I know Roger Martin is a very clever guy, good in understanding how the environment is changing. And the point was, customers are starting to accept innovation that is only about convenience. I mean, making things simpler. If you keep creating innovation that simply add new features and so on, customers have habits. Of course they change habit. If you force me, okay, now now there is, you know, I've been using uh, iMessage to, to send messages to my friend. Okay, now there is WhatsApp. Do, are you on WhatsApp? Yeah, if you want to communicate with us, you need to be in WhatsApp. Okay, let's use, start to use WhatsApp. And now there is Messenger for, say, Facebook. Okay, I can use Messenger for Facebook. And maybe even Skype for messaging. And 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 finally, when I've been learning all of this, now there is messaging through Snapchat. Okay, I need to get into Snapchat as well. So, the feeling we have by working with corporations is the market that is getting saturated by the innovation. I'm not saying that the market will not change, they will will keep changing a lot reluctantly. Not because they're happy, there will still be some stupid person that will buy some innovation, that will force the entire world to change because they, they start the movements. So my feeling is that we are getting to a tipping point in which the capability of organization to create innovation is much, much, much higher than what the market can take in. And I'm a professor of innovation, so. uh, (laughs) but I need to reflect about that, which Mm. means it's the moment in which, really, going back to a famous motto, less is more. Mm. Less is really more. We are saturating people with too much innovation.
0: Mm. And also, as you say, the reason for innovation. I mean, if there is an authentic real, true desire to move mountains with that innovation and change something important, people will go for it. I think that's natural. But if it's innovation for the sake of innovation, as you say, then we are more on a superficial level.
1: I've been intrigued by the story of Airbnb or Uber. Both innovation that were on the top list of uh, stories of innovation, unicorn, around the world. Well, after five years, we discovered that maybe it was not so good in terms of innovation. You know, there are super scary, tailoristic machines using people without any protections. And to you know, okay, they give salaries around, but you know, you see unions starting, you know, people starting to protest around the world about you know what kind of job is this one? Airbnb not paying taxations around. Uh, renting apartments, it's a nice way to earn money of course, but mm, there's something strange there. Why if I go to a hotel, they pay taxes, they have safety, they take care of the people with disabilities and there is a regulation there. And if I rent my apartment, mm, then you discover that in reality it's not really a person renting an apartment, there are real organizations making money through Airbnb. So a lot of innovation is interesting, business model, I'm not totally sure that we are creating a better world. For sure customers are tired, for sure customers are tired. So it doesn't mean you don't need to have innovation, but if you change something, then you change it really for real. I mean, then if you want people to change, ask them to change well and once in a while. Otherwise we create a crazy world. There is a limit to this.
0: But all these, as you say, platforms that have been created as uh, as Netflix or as uh, Airbnb, uh, Uber, etc., they're all normally brought up as examples of something that has been, you know, changed, transformed the business landscape and mm-hmm. moving into a new business model, like a cool, right, correct thing to do, you know, to shake up an old-fashioned industry or maybe even an old-fashioned system that we have as a society. But... So far, at least, you see Airbnb and Uber more like a question mark platform. Yes,
1: it's, uh, there is an interesting TV series called Back Mirror. It's, um, I don't know if you know, it's, it's all about the extreme of the digital society and it's taking the digital society to be extreme. I remember this, I was reading this about on, on the Financial Times about this story of uh, a girl wakes up in the morning and the first thing she does, she checks her reputation index. You know, if you rent your apartment in Airbnb, you can rate the customer and you can rate the apartment. Then you take Uber and you can rate a taxi driver, and a taxi driver rates you. Okay, and now you can buy an insurance for the car. And if you drive fast, you can have big data that track you. If you ride fast, okay, your in- price of insurance goes up or down. Can you imagine a life in which everything we do we are rated? And maybe this moment i open the door i hit the person by mistake and this person rate me one which means my life insurance will go up in price i cannot find a job because i'm a person when they open the door you hit the person and i mean these things happen in life so i don't know i feel a little uncomfortable with this so there are i think in the last this example of uber and BMW, there are things that locally they look cool but when you transform this into a global mechanism, and unfortunately, Uber and, and Airbnb have become global platform. I think we don't understand exactly what does it mean to transform something that is locally nice, which is the classic problem of sustainability. I cut this tree, and I build the house. It's fine, and I mean, there is a video there. But if everyone starts to cut trees around the world, there's no trees anymore, and there's a disaster. So I think that the same kind of mechanism has been happening with Uber and Airbnb locally, as an idea, nice, I can connect with someone else, I have some time, I can take you into my car, fine, multiply this as a platform with billion people, and you create a world that is a little scary. But,
0: There is one element that is, uh, I think, uh, elegant in this, is that you use resources that already exist, right? Yeah, yeah. You use cars that already exist or in movement, or you use houses or real estate that already exist. So from that perspective, it's... It's totally
1: uh, interesting. Uh, This is the the part of the story which is the most... That's the reason why everyone was happy about this at the beginning. The twist that's been taken recently is a little more scary. And um, I was talking to a friend from Harvard Business School, and... um, I think we still haven't seen much of the story. I think it's very difficult to understand where this. This is reason why I like Black Mirror, because it helps us to think, okay, let's take this to the extreme. What is a world? And unfortunately, we are not still there. We are not still to the extreme, but we will get there more likely. So I teach to students, I would like to start helping them to understand that it's, Nowadays, to create a little business is not difficult. To understand what are the implications when this becomes a platform is much more complicated. I see a situation in which a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, customers start to be tired and the implications of what we are doing are not totally clear, which for a person doing research, is intriguing, of course. But uh, I think I'm not alone if I say that people is tired.
0: Mm. And uh, your students, what are they mostly impressed by or intrigued by right now? What do they typically... You know,
1: oh, well, of course, if you ask a young guy, the myth of this moment is yeah, I want to build a startup, which implication are that many big corporations are starting to understand and why instead of investing in internal R&D, why don't we let outsiders do their R&D? And then when they become proven, then we can buy them. In fact, the funny thing about startups nowadays, no one wants anymore to start a startup because they want to build a company. They start a startup because they want to get to the proof so that someone else will buy them. So you want to become rich because in five years you will sell your company. But that's the myth. And, uh, and Driven
0: if, by money? Is that it?
1: First of all, they do it because they find it meaningful. I find it meaningful because I'm doing something that I believe in. So it's my startup, which means if I do this, it's because I believe this is good for people, for society, for markets, so that's, there's a strong connection between life and purpose when you do a startup. I can pick the people I like. So the team is people I like, to the point that I easily compromise salary in favor of these things. And in favor of a dream that I say, okay, of course I cannot do this forever, but if in five years we sell this, then we get the money. But in the moment in which you do it, you do it because you want, that's the thing you like to do, and that there's no other point. And with the people you like to do. So that's the dream of my student, I was saying this moment, why should I be hired by IBM? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's a big
0: competition, you could say, for good people out there right now. How do you attract them to companies? And, and, uh...
1: and The only way is to, to recreate internally a similar environment in which there is a very entrepreneurial activity, which means as an organization, you need to accept that people have their own internal vision and go in a direction which is not exactly the direction that the entire organization wants to follow. That's the reason why nowadays finding the vision is much more difficult because everyone has his own vision. So how can we align? It's a matter of alignment, not of telling, now we go there, because people don't want that anymore. Mm. I want to participate in the conversation. Can we share the direction? Mm. And so.
0: Like uh, synchronize the professional and the, and the personal development mm. of people, right? You mm. should have like a blueprint of people where you know what they are after, what is important to them, mm. and then combine it. Mm. What long-term solutions for business do you believe in?
1: This comes back to what we were saying before. The the only way to survive long-term is to clearly define a vision that is shared within your organization and update your vision like a living being. I mean, it's vision something that needs to be kept nurtured, but that's the way that keeps your... I don't know exactly what every every organization has its own long-term vision, but they have to have a vision. That's the most important thing nowadays. The more there are options, the more without the vision you get lost. Do you have a vision
0: for yourself or for what you do here in the Polytechnico?
1: At this moment, I would say that uh, the thing I would like to change is the way we teach. My feeling is that uh, because of the digital transformation, because of the people is changing, the young guys that are getting university are not the same as we've seen before. I would like to be in a situation in which We are capable to inspire young guys in a good way, where studying is not fun, because then we don't get into the passion. That's pleasure, it's another story. But it's it's a passion, as we said before. Painful, but ah, it gives me meaning as a person. And to get there, we need to move away from traditional education to more engaging.
0: Let's dream a little bit and say that you assume all doors are open and all the resources are available. What would you then innovate or change?
1: But coming back to what I was saying before, maybe, I, maybe the innovation would be to try to close a few doors. Because hmm. I don't think that, uh, I think we live in a world where all doors are open.
0: Hmm.
1: And so the, the trick, the big innovators are those who close the right doors and keep the right doors open. That's a big help you can give to society.
0: And um, if you imagine that you have all kinds of leaders, however you choose to define them in front of you, and you just have to force yourself to give them one good piece of advice.
1: (laughs) Very simple. Be humble. Be humble. It's Mm -hmm. the most important thing ever. Otherwise, you don't grow, you don't learn. The first thing to be a leader is to be humble. Which, unfortunately, is exactly opposite of the classic picture of a leader in front of us, but... Being humble is, is everything.
0: But you work with uh, many different leaders and companies. Have you seen any change from like 10 years ago till now? Something that is...
1: Until the election of Trump in the US, I would say yes. Now, <laughs> the point is that we live in, in a global world where you can have simultaneously... Very strong leaders, or very—you can have populism, and you can have democracy, you can have strong leaders, mind leaders. So you have, you have everything. So it's very difficult to understand trends. I would have loved to say, I see leaders who are more open, humble, and so on. But there are big scenarios in the environment. I say that they are not always those who succeed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then you have to choose. I mean, you choose your life. The world can go in a different direction you as a person have to choose which kind of leader you want to be.
0: Do you think that the purpose of companies as a unit, as a system, has to change drastically in the future? I mean, what we have classically today is you know, based on the industrialization somehow model, if we maybe exclude the recent startups and so on. But the rest of it is still old architecture. Yeah. So what is it that you see that those companies have to change or transform into?
1: It's a difficult question in the sense that uh, there are some experiments around new organizational forms like holacracy. Or... My feeling is that what will change is the people. Maybe the structure are still the same. Who cares if you have a very hierarchy or not? People will be so different, then maybe, maybe that's not even more relevant anymore, what kind of structure you are, because the change comes from the people. And probably they become more entrepreneurial in like time of environment, organization, but I don't know, maybe. Definitely we are, the, what's happening is that the people will are getting into organization are totally different, so the organization will be different by definition. Oh.
0: And in what way do you feel that they are becoming different? What is it that is changing in, in lots of people with some kind of increased awareness?
1: Yeah, this is, we are saying before about uh, new generations who have been driven by the search for a job because they have a purpose, individualism. So big challenges of moving everyone in the same direction, but at the same time, lack of safety. That's the reason why I'm not totally sure that traditional organizational structure will disappear because still they provide safety and structure. I hope and I can't imagine a world that keeps going toward fluidity the way we are going because sooner or later people will need some kind of safety around. We have been trading, as Zygmunt Bauman was saying, we've been trading to have more freedom, we're trading away safety, but there is a limit to that. So, there will be more individualism there is people who are more driven by passion by, by entrepreneurship but also they, I think they will still search for some safety around I mean safety in a way will become the luxury of the future
0: and um, if you would can go back 15 years from now and give a piece of advice to yourself actually what would it be?
1: Be humble <laughs> <laughs> uh, look back Look back, we are if you're a very if you like your job, you're doing stuff, you always look at the next at the dreams now, what's the next step? And the more you look in front of you, you the more you forget that if you are who you are, because there is people behind you who support you. So I would look a little more back.
0: And uh, what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now?
1: Nice ideas more vision.
0: What does the world need
1: the most at this time? It doesn't need more. It needs less. It needs less, I mean, for sustainability, it needs less for ideas, it need less for pressure of change. It's not easy to do, but the example of Apple we were saying before is the classic example of a business that are being successful because as Steve Jobs always say, my job is not to say yes the most difficult thing is to say no. As always, 20 years ago, maybe the world needed more. We missed a lot of stuff. I think we are in a world in which we need less. Do few things new, but those few things you do it well. And uh, because the more people try, and and you don't realize, of course you fail, you know, now there is this popular things that, you know, startups they try and fail, who okay. can fail often to succeed sooner. Every time you fail, you learn, of course, it's important. But Every time you do an attempt, it's not only your own cost, but you create entropy in the environment. Entropy is a concept in, in chemistry, which means confusion. It's the state of energy that it goes. The more you create entropy, the more energy cannot be used anymore. So you're using energy in reality. I mean, it's mental energy, it's, a, it's social energy. So I would say, I'm more concerned, I know there is a problem of environmental sustainability. I know there is a problem of uh, economic sustainability. I'm much more concerned for social sustainability in terms of confusion, ideas, capability of people to have a better life. There is a sustainability also at that level that we always underestimate. And especially businesses are extremely concerned to that because with everything they do, they increase. Entropy in the environment in this moment. So, those, but really, if you go to a company that's most successful in reality in this moment, our companies are doing less, not com- less. means clear vision, three products. Go to the website of, my, of Apple, how many iPhones you find there? Four. Go to the website of uh, Nokia, 72. Guess what kind of product people really love? Thank you, Apple, because you helped me to choose a great phone in just a second, instead of going to a website and spending three days to understand what is the right phone for me. What intrigues me in this moment, going back to the sharing economy, is why should I really buy a pair of shoes by Gucci if I could rent them? Because nowadays, if you you buy a great pair of boots of Gucci, the first thing that people do is to take a photo and post it on Instagram. And then they, then they are worn out. I mean, then you cannot wear them anymore because all your friends have already been seen. Ah, yeah, those are the shoes that you had the other day. I saw the photo. Okay, okay, old. Mm. So, but if I can rent them, then I rent them, and I even pay a lot. I don't care. It's not a matter of price or uh, the experience. I rent them, post them on Instagram, and the next day I rent another one. Still Gucci, or maybe another brand, whatever. But So again, they have the same struggle of the car industry. That's the probably the direction, as you said. It's like cars, 99% of their time, they are simply standing there, like in this moment, my car is standing in a garage, paying for nothing. And 99% of my clothes are there in my cabinet, doing their nothing. So there is a lot of stuff that we use for nothing, and we own for nothing. So for sure, there is an interesting Direction there that is more sustainable, and so on, and also also cooler in terms of luxury. Because if I could have different booths every night, why not? The problem is that the, industry, the entire industry is designed around this idea of selling, and I understand. I really, it's easy from the outside to say yes. Why don't you move there? But when you have a company that has, like in the case of cars, forty thousand people working, which means forty thousand families, probably even more in case of big. Then you are a little responsible before saying we don't. We closed ten factories because suddenly we don't sell cars anymore. We just rent them. Mm.
0: But maybe, as you say, with the rich variety of stuff that you can then, uh, you know, rent for a while, gives the business formula the quantity that you need anyway mm-hmm. to produce. So it doesn't necessarily has to, you know, have to mean that you have to
1: yes. let people go uh, or so. But um, um, there is still probably there will be still mm. car around, but if you really want to make it seriously, probably would be much less cars around, mm. which is good. We need less cars around. Yeah. But I understand why it's very difficult. In theory, this idea is great. The point is, how do you get from here to there? Mm.
0: With the and heritage. That's,
1: yeah. that's not, uh, that's the reason why it's easier to do this as a startup. This is the reason why it's easier for Apple or Google to build. The driverless car because they have nothing to lose.
0: So, grazie mille, Roberto. E it was wonderful and very valuable to, to listen to your thoughts and, and sharing your world. To find out more about Roberto Verganti and his work, you can head to verganti.it, V E R G A N T I.it, and follow him also in Harvard Business Review. And of course, you should also check out his new book, Overcrowded Designing Meaningful Products in a World Awash with Ideas, published by MIT Press. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Reza.